Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy, and I'm back here with Scott Russo to be able to talk about Secure Developer Training Program Part 2. So before we do that really quickly, if you enjoy listening or watching CISO Tradecraft, remember you'll love earning CPEs. We all need them for our certs. We've teamed up with the ISACA Central Maryland chapter to bring you live online their 20th annual day with GMARC on Wednesday, the 10th of January, 2014, from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. You'll earn seven CPEs that are good for ISC Squared, ISACA, SANS, and pretty much every other cert that's out there. And what a great way to start out the new year. So check out the link at CISOTradecraft.com slash ISACA, I-S-A-C-A, for more information and to register. And there's a limited number of seats, so don't wait. All right, so let's go ahead and resume our program with Scott Russo. Now, if you get new college hires, they kind of might need a little bit more hand-holding because they're fairly new in the work environment. Uh, now, do you offer ongoing support or mentorship to program participants after they complete the training program, or you just cut them loose? Well, it's absolutely wise to do that. And there's a couple of ways we had to manage that, right? So early days, and even now, it's, it, the core team isn't a massive team. If it was, then we would be back into the is it cost-effective problem. So how do I provide mentorship for all the thousands of people that may need it? They go through this training and and the hundreds of college hires that we just onboarded. How do we do that, right? Um, so long-term, the community became a very vital part of that. that. That's something we're rewarding people for, right? Like they excelled through it. They can help train others. We have a Slack channel. People can ask questions there. What was amazing to me in the early days, there was this sort of moment that occurred where you know I'm the one answering most of the questions in the Slack channel. And suddenly there was like a turning point where the community hit critical mass. And it's like, before I could even get to answer someone's question, hey, I need help with this. Someone would be like, oh yeah, sure. Hey, I'll be having to jump on with you in Zoom and show you what that what's going on with that. And I was like, awesome. That's what I was hoping to have. That's kind of how I, I dealt with a lot of it. I, I will say there were, there were some other things that we provided, right? So um, we did spend time going through a lot of the available learning from the overall training offerings that we had and just made sure we p picked out things and had some guides that for folks who just, again, the self-serve, like, I'm struggling with this. Can you just re give me a reference? And we all we maintain that too. But yeah, when the community took over handling that for me, that was like a beautiful moment when I knew this. I knew the program had legs at that point. It was going to grow. You feel like Satoshi Nakamoto and you fade away into the into the distance that somebody else has taken over the program. Everyone was like, who is this guy? Um, anyway, can you, can you tell us about some of the hands-on exercises and, and practical experience that people might see taking a secure developer training class? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a flow that I specifically like to use. Um, and like others, feel free to take my advice on this. Feel free to deviate. But uh, I like to start, first explain what the attack is. Um, then show it. because and, that, and that's the fun part for me, at least. And you can see the audience gets super excited when you're like, by the way, here's how you do this exploit. And you know, maybe I do that in juice shop or sometimes custom things, but okay, how, here's how it actually works. Break it down for them. Then have the group actually do something. All right, so I just showed you how to do that attack. Here's a slightly different way I'm going to have you do that attack now. So I'm like, I don't want them to just parrot what I did. They could follow along with me, certainly. But I'm like, I haven't given you all the answers. I want you guys to take five minutes, figure out if you can do it in a new new way or a new target, right? Um, okay, so then they, they know what the attack is. They have an idea, and I usually inject some sort of story in it, probably talk too long with my stories, but inject a story. Then I explain the defense, right? Because we're not done because their goal is not to do the attacks. It's to actually stop them from happening. So, all right, 
don't want that to happen in your application, here's the things you're going to need to be doing. I'll, for SQL and J, I'll explain query parameterization and how that works, for example. Um, then I'm going to show it in code, both the flawed code and then how to actually fix it. And then have them again get hands-on. Let's Now you work in the code. Like, here's some code. Can you see where the flaw is? Can you identify it? Can you fix it? So that's how I like my flow to be. And you can see there's, it's, there's the concept, demonstration, now you're hands-on. That's kind of the general pattern that I, that I use. Uh, so that was always a lot of fun for the class because essentially interaction is just constant throughout these courses. Uh, one other thing I do like to do, I always like to have some culminating thing at the end of a course. Uh, basically, so you learn everything kind of in a vacuum. Now I want to turn you loose. I'm not going to give you as many guardrails as I've been giving for the individual examples, but I'm going to turn you loose. Can you take multiple attacks in conjunction, maybe a few minor vulnerabilities and see what happens if, if you have them together? And I personally love doing that one. Like the, here's a bunch of little things. See if you can do something truly catastrophic with it because it explains one of, one of my most important points is you get this occasional why should I care about low and medium vulnerabilities, right? Like, and it's a legitimate question. I, I feel like, yeah, it's a perfectly good question to ask. So I love to have my culminating one be, here's a bunch of the little ones when if you have them together, it is really bad. Like some, like you're gonna, database has now been exported and that was probably not wise. Uh, so I love I love to have that culmination too. Yeah, that's a, that's a great learning point. I mean, it's only, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind like, teaching people to play chess, uh, ultimately, can you think more moves ahead than your opponent? And if your opponent is a defender and you're the attacker and you can put all these little things together, you're probably going to win. Now, have you any success stories or testimonials from participants who have completed your program? Well, absolutely. I've got to think of a few here, but um, I will say one of the things you definitely want to do, we, we hit metrics, but uh, reminds me, I did keep testimonials. So there was always in the survey somewhere for people to like write a little bit about what they thought about the class open-ended. Definitely kept quotes from those and used those to support this program really was valuable, like see what people are saying about it. Um, but you know what? I think my best testimonial is actually a, a man named Des, uh, Desmond Lamp. He goes by Des. So while I built the program and ran it for several years before uh, changing roles into cloud security, uh, Des actually took over for me when I left. And he was one, started as one of my learners. Uh, was in a course, got the cert, just very passionate about it, showed up at events to chat with us and, hey, how can I do more? How can I be a volunteer? I could see the passion. And the most important thing was he, he was well aligned in my mission, right? Like make it fun, make it interesting. That's the key here. I'm not trying to go just the compliance, compliance, compliance. I'm really trying to engage people because then they're going to learn. They're going to understand. They're going to benefit. Um, and he got the point of like, and I want the community, right? Like that's how this program is going to succeed. So basically I hired him, right? He came to me at one point I had a role open. He's like, can I join you? Absolutely. Please come. You've been great as a participant in the program. Come join me. Let's, let's run this program. Um, and honestly, I feel like that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's so far one goes with one's own vision. He just brought in something really special. And, and when he did, the advanced tiers, I, f I felt they got so much better fleshed out, more engaging, really brought something great with his own vision to the program. But I'd say my best testimonial of all is the person who's like, I loved your program so much. I want to join. And he has just, in the years since I left, just made the program amazing. And, and that's also reflects well on you because a lot of people don't want to let go of their baby, right? And they're saying like, you know... And someone's going to change it, they're going to alter it. But by doing so, by letting somebody who has, as you said, the passion, the skills, and the background, 
things get better. And I think we need to learn that also as leaders is that as good as we may be, having other people be able to enhance and provide better ideas and add additional aspects works really well. Now, ultimately, as we said, we're talking about things having to be updated. You've got security trends and the like. How do you incorporate them into your training program so that the program evolves correctly over time to match those security trends? Yeah, that may, so as someone who worked in learning and development, right, building this program, I have a great appreciation for lifelong learning. And frankly, that's a goal that I think everybody should have, right? The world changes so quickly. Technology changes so quickly. We all have to be lifelong learners. Well, you, you've uh, heard G. Mark's law, right? Half of what you know about security is obsolete in 18 months. And we had to put the yeah. engine in. It's been out there 12 or 20 years now. Yep, exactly. So I, I personally use several ways to stay up to date. And, and that's part of it. Like our core team, like I said, is the one that I want to be looking at and saying, do we have the right content? Anything need refreshed? Uh, so I use several things. So first off, thank you very much for your, your podcast, G-Mark. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, podcasts are very helpful. Um, I'm also periodically attending webinars. Now, I will say a lot of them have been from cloud vendors lately because that is a particular interest of mine. So it's not been for me as much in the application security domain but just really understanding where we're going with cloud. Um, and of course, generative AI and all what are the cloud folks, the, C, uh, the cloud service providers, what are they doing in Gen AI? Very interesting to me lately. Uh, but of course, if one is working on this program, you should be seeing what's the latest grace in application security. The other thing that I don't want to discount. So I take probably a surprising amount of frequency of basic OWASP top 10 courses, basic application security courses. And you might think like, wait, why are you doing the basics if you teach this stuff and build this program? Shouldn't you be in advance? And I take those two, uh, but I found it's actually great just periodically retake one of the basic courses, see what's been refreshed, what's changed, what's new. And and you will see changes over time. There has been some distinct changes in the OWASP top 10s. CSRF not coming up as much as a big issue. We have new issues coming about. The deserialization problems that came out, right? So it is changing and it, and so to, it's like, stay humble, right? Like, don't assume that the basics are still the same. A lot of, like, like you said, like, there are certain things that, honestly, in all the years I've done this, injection continues to look quite similar. The defenses look quite similar. Uh, but what people are actually injecting and being successful at has changed. So uh, I actually hilariously like to do a lot of the, like, let me just go back and take a beginner course again and make sure I'm, you know, it hasn't drifted away from where I'm at. Yeah, I, I, I like that because I think a lot of us say, well, I don't ever need to do that again. I'm above that level, but very important because you'll see, as you had said, where, where our evolution is going and, and what's happening out there that we might have missed. Now, one of the things I see people go back and forth on is addressing the challenge of how do you balance security with developer productivity in your training program? Any, any tips on how to do that careful balancing act? Yeah. Well, I can't stress enough the importance of automation and shifting left. Now, I will say in the training program, um, well, maybe it's more crossover to other capabilities. But remember, the thing that I want to do here is lower the burden on the developers. And I can teach them and make them feel empowered and comfortable to deal with security vulnerabilities, but they keep, they're going to keep coming, right? And that's going to be continually overwhelming. Um, and I kind of look at it like this. So there are certain things we can do, maybe kind of ancillary to the program of automated patching and maybe encouraging that perhaps it's an advanced course, uh, how you do that and do that without breaking your application, for example. Um, obviously, if I don't have to worry about that, that's great. Or maybe I start to shift to serverless architectures. I could even extol the virtues of that, of like, now you aren't going to have to worry about patching the OS. Uh, so we're trying to 
think of ways how to get rid of the burden. We should share that knowledge with the developers, but some of it may come from outside our program. We got to be looking what's the rest of the company doing. Um, but yeah, shifting left, you got you have to have that. Because the other thing I like to think of is if I find out that I've done something wrong that I need to fix after I release the feature, it's out there, it's in prod, now you've told me I did it wrong. In my own mind, I've moved on. I'm on the next feature, crud. I have tech debt, I have to go back. My progress is slowed. Nobody likes that. Software developers don't like that. I don't like that. So that's the other thing. Early identification, and, and even part of that is the culture, right? Like you can have the things being identified early, but not being action, but like making that part of the DNA. And that can be shared in the training conceptually. Start as soon as you can to fix this stuff so that it is not sitting there like, oh no, I got to go back to the thing I already thought I was done with. Yeah, I remember a, a table in this. I mean, I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but look at the cost of between when you're at the design phase and you spot an error. Well, it's like 1x. And then we start to code it, you got to recode it. Well, then after you've done your integration, now after you've gone ahead and done the rollout, once you're on the you know testing and then when you're in production, that could go up to 50x and have it to back everything up there. So you're right, shifting left is a huge financial savings as well as making sure that you avoid a lot of the security risks that could be involved. So one of the things that I've seen also out there is creating a maintenance role. Let's say, for example, you've got a team of five developers and each spends you know, maybe 20% of the time maintaining the system, patching, fixing legacy code, things like that. But the majority, the 80% of their job is on new features and they probably care about new features a lot more. I mean, that's the fun stuff. But that being said, if you had four developers who spent 100% of their time on the new features and then one developer who was focused 100% of the time on maintenance activities, then you'd have a single person responsible for maintaining the application. Now, you kind of have to want to do that. You don't want to put somebody in there going, oh, really, do I get you know, the short straw here? But having that type of accountability may be really helpful for a lot of organizations, especially if you get the right personality in there. What do you think? Is this something that could be applied more to organizations or do you just have to give everybody a mixed bag of responsibilities? You know, it, it is an interesting concept. Um, I, I haven't honestly given it a lot of thought before now, but I, I do have a kind of a few reactions. So I think it would depend heavily on the culture of the organization. Um, and, and like you said, definitely, I know from the program, there are people, they love this stuff. Like if you, if you said you get to spend all your time figuring out how to make this secure and by make it, please make it more interesting than just fix the SQL injections, right? It's got to like, let them do the threat modeling parts and figure out the grander architecture. Like you got to make it interesting. Uh, but I know there's definitely folks we've had engaged with our program that they would probably love that and, and really excel. And I can see the benefit the whole team gets of some folks don't even have to worry about that now because it's being covered. Um, on the flip side, I think what, like my, what would concern me about this is we got to make sure we're fair, especially if we're rating their performance. Right. And like, you gotta, you gotta really look at that. Cause if you're, if everybody's being rated of like, well, look at how many features you get out and how quickly you put the person that focuses on security at a natural disadvantage. So I, I like the idea. It's very interesting. Um, what I'd say is to do it, one must first look at what is the culture and can we support that? And I, I kind of, there's a saying, I don't know who said this saying, or if it's just anecdotal or whatever, but it's metrics driving behavior. Right. Um, so how I measure my developers is going to matter a lot, whether that can succeed or not. If I, if there's no incentive to focus, to have someone focus on that role, then whoever's in that role will, will naturally want to move out of it. But if it's, they're being celebrated and rewarded accordingly, uh, then I could see how that could work. That's a very good point. I mean, I think if you take that role, which ostensibly might seem to be less exciting, but if you make it more on a career path, it says, Hey, the next level up, you almost have to pass through that. And people see that as, okay, fine. This is my 
um, opportunity to move forward career-wise, then that's not so bad because you say, look, you're really good here. Let's make sure you can keep things going that you built and off you go. But you're right, more discussion on that probably within organizations, but it does come down to culture. Um, another thing I've found, though, that teams need to be able to anticipate about bad things happening, and that's often done with threat modeling. Do you see threat modeling being used in secure developer training programs? Yeah, it, honestly, it should be. So I've talked a lot about really the, the, how we focus in on the secure coding piece, but there's a greater secure development that spans beyond just secure coding, right? And while I do want to make sure I've got a baseline, no matter where someone is at in understanding secure coding principles, I see there's there's some advanced skills that where threat modeling should come into play, uh, because similarly, all the same things apply, right? Like if you get if you haven't addressed it while you were architecting and now you've released it, guess what? That's going to be really hard to fix now. So yeah, I, I, I see it fitting in quite well. I also see like reality. And again, this definitely was very clear to me during my pen testing days. I, I In my first days as a pen tester, I was a little naive. I'm like, how am I going to ever find anything? There's all these scanning tools. They should be finding everything. Man, this is going to be hard. And then I realized, oh, they miss a lot of stuff. Okay, got it. And, and, and this is not a knock on scanning tools. Use them because they take away a lot of the tedium. Uh, but I realized quite quickly, like there is a whole realm of types of vulnerabilities that these tools just do not see. Um, and that typically have to do with how you've architected and like in the context of the application and how it's going to be used, for example. Um, so that to me comes right down to the architecture where we should be looking, doing our threat model. I, I see it as an advanced skill and I see it should be part of the program. And something that even like if you... You do your new college hires, you train them, they learn the secure coding. Why not be part of your progression to develop and become more, you know, more experienced engineer, a team lead is to learn how to do that. So I absolutely think it belongs in the program. That makes good sense. Now, how do you think, how would you teach secure coding practices in well, different programming languages like Java versus Python or JavaScript or something like that? Is it, is it fundamentally the same principles or do you have to do something differently? Sort of both. So... The fundamentals and the concepts, the same, definitely. Um, and if you're doing the part of the exercise that's, here's the attack, it looks truly very, very little different as far as from the attacker's point of view. You made an injection flaw, I don't really care if you made that because you wrote in Java or Python or whatever you wrote it in, right? Like from that point of view, it looks the same. Um, and so thankfully there's a lot that's reusable because it would be very tedious if literally everything had to be customized per the language and framework. Uh, but there's definite differences in languages. So I'll give you um, one specific example. It's kind of like recent and on my mind. Angular. So it's a front-end framework. It uses a templating system. And that's that's automatic. That's built in. That's their whole approach to how they deal with cross-site scripting. If you use the capabilities they provide you out of the box, you will not have problems with cross-site scripting. You actually have to go out of your way to to allow untrusted data to then reflect back into the into the web page and create cross-site scripting. But that is not the same for all languages, right? Some of them, you have to specifically make sure you're doing output encoding, whereas Angular is going to do that for you. But what I'm looking for in Angular is, did you subvert the system and do it your own way? So very different way I got to look at it, meaning how it gets addressed at code, what, what looks like a problem in the code and how it gets fixed is fundamentally different in those spaces. So yeah, you do have to customize that. And again, that's where for my own analysis of is this cost effective for me to do that manually i concluded there's too many frameworks and languages and not enough of people or it would be very 
pricey for me to hire all the people to keep that constantly up to date. Um, and then there's only so far you can go with your volunteers before it's like, now you have a full-time job with me. So yeah, you have, that's definitely things you do need to keep up to date in the different languages. Makes sense. Now you talked a little bit before about the duration of these training programs. You know, we had little four hour segments is kind of being the bite size, but any strategies to engage and motivate participants throughout the program, you know, keep moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let me share a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, I did talk what I do in the classroom and give a little bit more context on that one. If I had a rule of thumb, it would be every five to 10 minutes, your learners should be engaging with you on something. And like, it can vary. I'm not saying it all has to be a coding thing that they're doing, but like at the very least, they're answering questions, they're engaging, they're doing something. Um, but so we'll move off from that because let's talk about the bigger program though. How do I keep them engaged as I'm to move through tiers? So the biggest thing that I'm kind of thinking about is put yourself in the learner's shoes and then ask, what's in it for me? Like, what, what am I getting out of this program? Why should I come back? It, it's a question that they are going to be thinking, whether you like it or not. Um, and again, if you've compelled them to do it, maybe... The, sorry, let me just clarify. Even if you did compel them to do it, please ask that question and have something in it for them. You can still make it fun and engaging under those circumstances, but you yeah, gotta ask that question. They say the favorite radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me? There you go. Yeah, what's in it for me? So answer that question. And, you know, in the early days, the voluntary days, truly I was doubling down on like, this is good for your career growth. And it was, right? Like if you're one of the few in the first hundred, the, even the first 500, right? Like you're you're distinguished from others of having done this program. And then and then there's tiers, right? So you do the, the intermediate one. And that, at that point is when I said, if you, you, know, if you do well enough here, we'll evaluate. Um, you can become an instructor and guess what? That's rewarding. That's supporting your career growth. So I definitely made sure there was an incentive tied right back to things that they actually cared about. Then um, also I want to, you know, make the volunteers feel appreciated too, right? Send them spot awards, send them a thank you note and copy their leader. Um, that's, that's one of the ways I kept them engaged. Uh, one other thing, so there's a few things here. I did end up setting up a dashboard for the various different like line of business leaders. How's your work doing? I was amazed how much engagement that drove. There turns out that gamified them too. And like, if you're a leader of an org, they were like, I want, I don't want to be last or I really want to be ahead of this other leader. <laughs> I know that is very interesting because when I started showing that data and not just the learners engaged, but their leaders were like, how do, I, I don't have enough of my people in this department certified. Can you come do a trading? It was, it was amazing. That got engagement. And of course I mentioned, I had all kinds of shirts, laptop stickers. I had some posters. We had competitions. Um, you know, I want to keep it top of people's mind and make it fun and engaging and that they're, you know, give them opportunities to share about the program. So that was kind of like a constant reminder. This program's out there. It's fun. You're going to hear about it. You're going to see it. Uh, so definitely spent a lot of time on, I, I mean, I legitimately had a fully fleshed out marketing plan for launching that program. Uh, but that, yeah, that's, that was part of the building the, the momentum. Yeah, that's really important because if, if people get bored on the first segment of a multi-segment program that goes over you know weeks or things like that, pretty much everything you're going to teach them is going to be wasted, particularly if you're in a virtual environment where they're kind of, oh, let me go down here and check my voicemail or email or something like that. But I like how you keep their attention. Now, how do you accommodate different learning styles and preferences among participants? Do you try to do that or you just kind of make one size fits all? Yeah, so... Maybe there's, there's a couple ways to look at that. Um, to, to some degree in a classroom, I have to go right down the middle, right? Some people, they actually do benefit from the lecture part, and that's the best thing for them. Some, they benefit most from the exercises and seeing it hands-on. You just never know. Like, 
there's just not a way to be like, this is the course for you and this is the course for you because the learners, frankly, sometimes don't even know. So when you're in the classroom, you want to blend it. Um, and I, but I did mention, you know, there are self-paced folks. So I have kind of talked a lot about the fun things I do in the classroom to engage there and the exercises and the let's talk to the hackers thing. That, that's all fun there. But I don't want to downplay the self-paced folks. There, there's something to that too, right? And there is a different tact that you need to take with them. It would be very easy to forget them, right? Because they're not interacting with you constantly. You don't even know they're there until you see it show up in your metrics. So if you only review your metrics quarterly or something, you might have totally forgot they're there and how they're doing. So I would definitely emphasize, think about how your self-paced learners are doing. How are they progressing through your path? And um, do they have exercises? Are they, are they interested? Are you taking their feedback and improving that? Well, so don't forget those, those, uh, the do-it-yourselfers who, who are going to, they're not going to come to your class, but they are working and engaging. And the other thing is, um, in the classroom, like you said, I can see someone, maybe not the virtual, because they can obviously go off camera and I do say, please come on camera. But, um, you know, in the instructor-led classroom that's in person, I can see if someone's checking their, their voicemail and we can, we can carefully and politely address that. Or some of the email, they'll probably not check, hopefully not check their voicemail. That would just be incredibly rude. Uh, but anyway, you know, I can see that and I can, I can gently correct that. But with the, with the self-paced, right? Like if they kind of, something big comes up, they've forgotten about it. Like, you know, there's no, I don't, I'm not going to see that actively that I need to, I do need to be watching how they're progressing and maybe send a nudge and some, some of the learning systems you can set up an automated email, like, Hey, like we see you've got through two out of three parts of this. Just a reminder, you, you, here's part three when you're ready and it takes this long to do. So. Yeah, don't forget about those folks. Then that, they do take a different path. That's a good point. I mean, some people are going to learn a lot. There are some people, as you said, are natural. They're already good at it. They're self-developed. But also some people just might never become a good developer, let alone a good secure developer. And so I've heard a concept of like a developer's driver's license exam, where you can pretty much get a baseline understanding of everybody to make sure that they can, well, you know, obey the rules of the road. I mean, how do you handle things like remediation for participants who just don't meet the required proficiency levels. Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting one. So thankfully, I didn't have to deal with that very much with my program. And I like to think it's because we were very proactive at supporting all of our learners to get them there. I mean, in reality, yeah, there were folks who took um, double, triple the time to finish and pass the exam than others. But ultimately, everybody, I've never seen anyone like they just couldn't get there and that's like a total fail. Everybody's gotten there in time. Um, but yeah, there's a couple ways we avoid that. Uh, so one was that pretest, and then I could direct someone that, like, I know they're going to struggle if, if in the pretest they, they score below a certain range. We're proactively like, here's some extra things for you that will help you to learn what you need to know. Uh, so that definitely was helpful. Um, the tests themselves that we use had a way to address that too. They were very good with feedback without giving away the answers. So it would be very clear, like, you're really struggling dealing with cross-site scripting you're really struggling dealing with authentication or something like it would tell them and then give them specific here's what here's the instead of having to now do everything again which is sort of discouraging it was like focus on learning this and that should help you get where you need to be so there were some things that helped them correct um and again that could take longer but, but ultimately folks got there but i will say i went to great lengths not to punish anyone who was trying so that was the other thing and i would highly encourage that because you know if i'm for example, I'm not, I would never publish internally. I use yes, but I've never publish data on how many times someone failed the exam. That is just, 
then they're not going to come back, right? Like, oh, good. Every time I try and I fail, you tell my manager and then I get punished, right? Like, why would you want to engage? So we, we kind of, that was like behind the scenes. Now I had that data because, and I use it in an anonymized way because I want to make sure the training works and is effective. And like, if I'm seeing some problem areas, like I want to be able to address it, but um, yeah, definitely. I want to create that environment where keep trying, you'll get there and it's encouraging. And honestly, I can't even think of a single example of someone that just could not get there. So that's a good point. Yeah. I, I think encouraging goes a long way instead of saying, well, we've just passed on your resume for the job opening as a third floor janitor, since you don't seem to be able to work too well with the keyboard. But um, one of the other things is that we teach people, we don't just teach them on information security, because it's one of the things we're looking at, at the old WASP and some of the vulnerabilities and things like that. But we also have to teach them about data privacy. Now, how do you ensure that your training program complies with the relevant privacy and data protection regulations? Yeah, it's, so you asked me how my program complies as well. Of course, we have um, data for the content, but both it really comes in the content too. But uh, no, it's fine. So I, this, this is a good one because um, I can answer it with the same answer in both ways from a general concept. Uh, I live by this philosophy of please don't reinvent the wheel, right? Like one point for inventing something new to solve our problem, but you get two points if you actually found a solution that already exists and just use that so that we don't have all the maintenance of maintaining something new. Um, anyway. So I want to spend my time on the program, right? Like I don't want to worry about compliance. And similarly, you're a software developer. You want to work on your features. You do not want to always work on compliance. There are definitely things that one should use that can help support you. And it's going to vary. Like maybe it's how the internal company handles data and the, the requirements we have there, centralized systems for classifying data and managing data, right? Um, I did the same thing, right? So I didn't want to reinvent learning management systems. I have data, obviously, about my trainers or my trainees, the learners. Uh, some of it, of course, is sensitive HR data. Some of it's getting very specific where exactly they sit in the building. And I, I was looking at those demographics, like where where do I need to show up and do an event to get more engagement, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, my, my answer in both cases was use what already exists. We do not have to reinvent the wheel on these things. For the love of God, do not reinvent cryptography. And yeah, I, I mean, I use the centralized learning management system to, I can get all the great reports with all of the data and the HR data, but I did not have to deal with the handling it. Well, I mean, like, you know, if I'm using it, but like, how is it being stored in the system and managed there? Um, same answer for both, basically. Yeah. We, we, we talked about different languages. We talked about threat intelligence and things changing and the evolution of what's going on, even in the languages themselves. So what strategies have you found that work well to take a complex security concept and make it understandable to a wide range of participants? Uh, well, so first off, I, I feel like my animated slides are kind of on point. But anyway, that just kind of jokingly, the, the principle is there, though. So um, it's just like anything else. You, you know, you have a complex problem, a complex project. What do you do? How do you overcome it? Well, you break it down into digestible steps, the small wins to get get us there. So that's exactly what I did in my training. When I, you know, when I said I'll go through an example, um, it was broken down, especially when I do the first demonstration of like, here's a very specific step. I'm going to show you exactly how that SQL injection works. What, where's the user input coming from? When does it get concatenated? What does the result look like? How does that work? I'll show you what happens if you do it wrong and it doesn't work? Like here's, and I'll show you then, but here's how to do it right. So I show you both and I break it into these little steps. And so you're learning in these little bite-sized chunks that are manageable, but it, but when it all comes together, it finally culminates in that's how it really works. And that is just pervasive throughout my my uh, learning style. It's start small, then big accomplishment. 
And, and, and it makes good sense. I mean, that would keep people's interest, and I, and I see that. Now, how about culture? We talked earlier about culture for an organization is to get people in there, but how about creating a culture of security awareness within the organizations as a result of your training program? Is there any other good tips beyond just making this type of training required for your all developers? Yeah, and that is the community piece, right? So nurture that community. Uh, reward them. They will spread the culture for you, right? Like if it's if I come and I join things, I win prizes, I volunteer, I get a gift card, I get a nice email that my manager's on it. You nurture that and they all become part of the community and they're the ones that spread the culture, right? Like culture is not a, I declare this is the culture and therefore it is. It's what gets adopted. And then it'll flip back and it gets really interesting. Um, I told you about the moment that I, you know, realizations I've had with my program and like I have other people answering questions. It's more than that, right? Like over time, I had I just got this sense of the community is driving this now. Like I I have I'm more like directionally pointing where the program should go, but the community is bringing it there. And it the coolest part was I'm like they did it better than I ever would have done. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that certainly was a good idea. <laughs> I mean, to let them do it, right? So nurture the community. They build they build the culture. Yeah, and and that's a good point. Now, can you describe any partnerships or collaborations you have with other organizations or even experts in the field of secure development? I mean, I imagine things you might have seen from other organizations you said to yourself, wow, this is really cool. Uh, let's try that here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to shout out to Chris Romeo. Um, he, I, don't, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he, he's got his own uh, application security training that he does. But I met him many years ago and he provided me with some mentorship. So I was at GE at the time and he was at Cisco. And he built um, a similar program. But, and like our firm, ultimately they manifested very differently. Um, but it was the concept that he had that I, I shared the same vision and found, found completely inspiring was like, this, this should be fun for developers and engaging for them, not forced on them. And like that, when I saw that and he meant guide me on that, I was like, I want to do that. Like, how how do we do that? Uh, so I always appreciate that mentorship. And I do, I do encourage, like, look out in the community. What are others doing and what can we learn from them? But that was huge inspiration. And I will say, at the time, I feel like it's now kind of standard. Uh, the other thing I was seeing at the time when I was building the program, um, like I said, like most CBTs ends in here's your multi-choice. Um, but I'm starting to see vendors were building and introducing these tools where it's like get hands-on in the code during the training and to get immediate feedback. And I was like, I got to have that in my program. I want it. I want that hands-on piece. So I feel like that's more pervasive now. It, like back then it was like unheard of, but um, now it's everywhere. And that was like, wow, I love it. So yeah, I always try to keep up to date. Where, where's the technology going in the learning space too, not just in the cybersecurity space. And mm -hmm. what, what are some bright ideas out there and people who can inspire us? Good toss. Another important aspect is learning from what went well and sometimes what didn't work so well. And then what could we add to make it better? So how do you handle feedback from participants to improve your program over time? Oh, the surveys for sure. And I guess I've talked a lot about what went right and things that worked, and that's mostly what I've been sharing, but know that it wasn't perfect at the get-go. There was experiments, things I tried, concepts that just did not work. Um, but yeah, you got a survey. That's the key. I need, you know, I can't predict what the, what's in everyone's mind. I got to ask them. Um, so I did, you know, I did get some realizations. And actually that's what led to that whole part of what led to that whole structure of like, we, we actually started the program with, you do the basic of OS top 10 first, then you go in and start doing the coding, et cetera, et cetera. And I got a lot of feedback on the first pilot of like, 
this part is boring. Like I know who lost top 10. You don't need to reteach me that. And then the whole, the whole program fundamentally changed. So call, get that feedback survey. When they finish the course, the survey should be in their inbox immediately when they finish. Yeah. So if our listeners get hooked on the idea of let's set up a secure developer training program, like of course, one of the first thoughts that goes through their mind is like, well, how much is this going to cost? Now you mentioned stickers and things like that, but any advice on what organizations should think about spending when they're planning for these types of services? Well, it's certainly, and it depends because it's going to depend <laughs> how you, how do you want to build it? Like I talk, talk about my personal blend of what I felt made sense to build inside and what made sense to source. Also the size of your company probably matters because obviously if you're licensing things, the more you have, the less it is, but I'll, I'll put it into context at the very least. So, uh, you know, I look out at what are the uh, certifications that are out there? Like if I wanted to take a developer, send them off to a cert course uh, to go learn how to do secure coding from an external vendor, like a full, the full turnkey package. So it's about 5000 to $10,000. And, and, you know, that's the cost of the cert and the training, plus probably maybe they have travel and expense and all that. So it's about five to $10,000. Um, I was able to get it down to about a tenth of the cost on a per developer basis. And that's why I had the metric, how much is each person I'm training costing? Because I could compare it to, well, what if we still wanted to do this, but we just set everybody out? And uh, but, but be, you know, to be clear, that's highly unrealistic. <laughs> um, but it just gives you a gauge, at least, of like, it's about the tenth of a cost uh, if you, you know, assuming you have the right scale. But it, your mileage may vary, I guess, is the answer on yeah. that. Did you find you had to create separate secure training classes for say, mobile software development and embedded programming and cloud programming or operational technology, or do they all about the same? Well, they start off roughly the same, right? So the security principles are going to be the same, um, but they definitely diverge. And I'm glad you asked on like mobile and all that. So we did actually have to do mobile as um, kind of a separate program. Now, I did want everything to be consistent. And that, that's key, right? Like the, if the program, everything is so custom and different and this one has three tiers, that has five tiers, like it just doesn't stop making sense because nobody knows. They have to look at each thing and understand it consistently how it functions. Um, also, keeping it simple in that way makes life easy on, on operating. But there definitely was differences. Um, now, I didn't have like, the embedded piece or the operational technology piece so much as a demand for mine, but certainly mobile and the cloud security stuff was. Uh, so yeah, generally what I did with those is of course, some of the baseline stuff is the same, but they, they really are in their own lanes, very similar program, very similar fields, branding structure, all of that, but absolutely different. And, and you gotta think of it this way too, this is community building around it. So if I am a mobile app developer expert, maybe I'm iOS or Android, and I don't know, there's probably strong factions there, but I feel like it's at least close enough. I, I would feel comfortable guiding another mobile developer. I probably would not feel comfortable going and guiding someone who has like an Angular or Node app or something. Like it's too different. Um, so I, you have to consider like they kind of almost have their own group that's engaging and volunteers. And it's it's just a pra for practical reasons. That makes sense. Now, now, how do you keep track of participants' progress and their completion rates? Use your LMS or... Yes, absolutely. I will I will say there were early days when I had a bunch of scrappy Python scripts just to get the thing off the ground before I could get it integrated in the learning management system. Um, but yeah, it's actually very vital because how do I know when to nudge people? How do I know how much progress folks are making? How do I know when to send a certificate? I got to have that. Um, life became very much more easy once I have everything kind of linked up to the central 
learning management systems and tools that really do that for me. And honestly, some of those tools, amazing. I can get amazing reports. That's how I, like, like I said, there's so many people in this floor of this building are certified. Here's the floor I should probably go to and do an event. Like it was amazing, but yeah, early days, it was literally Python that were scrappy later, much better than the LMS. Now, now when you get all that data, really good lessons learned you had from tracking that information. You know, I'll, I'll give you my, I'll give you my top one. I, I alluded to this earlier, but you know, and I, I thought there's a, there's a few others I can think of, but sometimes they're situational. Um, but sharing out the data to the right audiences was so vital. There was certainly a turning point. Um, I was getting pretty decent engagement, and I got several hundred folks, maybe I think about two hundred ish, to engage with me voluntarily at, at the onset. And then I published start publishing the data by each leader's org. So you can see like, if you're, if you're a manager, a people leader, and you can see like, who in my org has done this and how do I stack compared to other, I mean, coincidentally, I wasn't forced purposely doing this, but it kind of just, you know, it's all in the same dashboard. You get that. Well, how am I doing compared to my peers that are the other leaders? And they got completely gamified. So we're out there gamifying the learners. Incidentally, by sharing out the metrics and the data, I gamified the leaders too. And that, to me, that was like a turning point where, Suddenly the demand was like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to need some more traders to keep up with demand. Highly recommend it. Publish the data. Be thoughtful how you do it, but publish it to the right people. What trends, any trends you foresee in the field of secure developer training? You know, I'm sure there's a lot of trends going on in the learning space, but there's one that's really caught my eye that I think is like, it's going to revolutionize everything. It's the generative AI, uh, all that that's going on in that space. It's going to impact so many things. And this, we could probably have a whole topic on this one, but um, how would it change secure developer training? Well, I could see beneficial ways and I can see some new risks that may come from it. So uh, I'll give you an example. Like we GitHub Copilot, right? Like it's helping developers write their code. Part of the value proposition is it writes secure code. Now, I would always encourage a healthy amount of skepticism (laughs) on such claims. But like, let's say it does. Like, if that's the the goal, and I'm sure if, if it's not there today, I'm sure we'll get there, right? Um, I just haven't evaluated it myself uh, at this point. But that's very encouraging. And what does that mean? Well, it may mean that in the future, there's certain types of secure coding mistakes that we just stop seeing, right? Because you can see a big adoption of these tools, and suddenly, boom, that's done. It's not a thing that the developer worries about. But there's a flip side to that, right? So. I kind of, I have this inkling we're going to trust the output probably a little more than we should. I'm, I am just waiting to hear, I'm sure it'll be in like a, a news story for a disaster or I don't know where, but I'm waiting to hear the, it wasn't my fault, the AI generated the code. And that's going to be very interesting when that first happened. Because, the dog ate my homework, right? Yeah, and I, can't, I can't imagine that it's perfect. And that's probably too aspirational, right? Uh, maybe, maybe it's the threat modeling piece that helps us with that. Like we got to figure out what doesn't it do well at catching um, or how can it be manipulated? I don't know, maybe even entirely new risks that it creates. So, I mean, I'm just scratching the surface on that. I just have a feeling that this go- it's going to have an impact on how people, I mean, I don't know, maybe here's another, like maybe it's instead of needing all these mentors, maybe you can talk to generative AI and they can live explain you how to fix things. I don't know. So I'm excited to see where that goes, but I, I just have this feeling that's going to change everything. Just give it time. But maybe for the better, maybe in some ways for the worse, but we will see. Well, hey, Scott, it's been a real pleasure to learn from you about secure developer training. As, as we get ready to wrap up the show here, any departing thoughts you have? 
Oh, you know what? I'll, I'm going to say the same thing that I think I, I kind of vaguely remember saying this to Des when he first joined. Above all else, it's about showmanship with these training courses. I can't stress this enough. You want to have a great training. You want people to have fun and enjoy it and want to come back. Make it entertaining. And you can learn and entertain people simultaneously. So um, spirit of showmanship, that's what it's all about. That's what keeps people engaged. Can't recommend that enough. And I guess, uh, G-Mark, hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Been really glad to chat with you. Yeah, you're most welcome. Hey, Scott, thanks you for coming on our show today and, and sharing your knowledge about secure developer training programs. Really appreciate all your great insights and the lessons learned. And hey, listeners, thanks again for joining into the show today to talk about secure developer training programs. And if you enjoyed this show, please give us like a five-star review in the Apple podcast or whatever system you're listening in. It helps us reach more listeners and we can then help get the whole ecosystem secure. Well, it takes a moment. And if you're looking to learn more, then subscribe both to our LinkedIn page and to our YouTube page because we're going to find a lot of good content being released on those as well. Uh, don't forget to look at the show notes because we're going to have some good information there. And here you can see links if we have sponsors and show transcripts in case you want to reveal or reread important parts. And we also have our podcast broken out into chapters on YouTube. So you can use those links to skip to key points in the conversation for review. And, and we hope you've enjoyed the work we put into these show notes as well as the podcast. So this is your host, Jim Arcardi. You appreciate your engagement. Until next time, have a great holiday season with your friends and your family. And uh, stay safe out there.